Tonight, straight from the source, I have new reporting on how Rudy Giuliani is learning the hard way there's a huge price to pay for pushing Trump's election lies, and the ex-president, who demands loyalty, doesn't often reciprocate. What my sources are saying about a Mar-a-Lago meeting and Giuliani's big ask. Plus, the prosecutor in Georgia with an ambitious trial timeline. She wants Trump in court the day before Super Tuesday. Could the 2024 frontrunner be in front of a judge for most of that election year? And Hawaii's governor says that more than 1,000 people tonight are still potentially missing. As FEMA is acknowledging challenges with the relief efforts there, we'll get an update from a top official and a new look at some of the harrowing scenes on the ground. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. We begin tonight, though, with some exclusive new reporting on the hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees that Rudy Giuliani is now staring down and the desperate attempts that he has made to get former President Donald Trump to cover them. With his attorney in tow, I am told that Rudy Giuliani traveled to Mar-a-Lago in late April on a mission to make a personal appeal to Trump to pay his legal bills. By going in person, Giuliani and that lawyer, Robert Costello, believed that they could help explain face-to-face why Trump needed to assist his attorney with those ballooning legal bills. They argued that, really, it was in Trump's best interest to do so. But apparently, it fell on deaf ears. Trump is notoriously strict about digging into his own coffers. He did not seem very interested, I'm told, in covering everything that Giuliani and Costello wanted. One source says that he verbally agreed to help, but he didn't commit to any specific amount or timeline. Another source tells me that Trump really only agreed to pay a small fee from a data vendor that was hosting Giuliani's records. I'm told that was about $340,000, while in total, Giuliani's legal fees are in the seven-figure range. Giuliani's trip to Mar-a-Lago has not been previously reported. We're telling you about it first here on The Source tonight, but it does indicate the level of financial stress that he has been facing for months now. Some people in Trump's inner circle were actually surprised by Trump's unwillingness to pay for Giuliani's bills, given he could find himself under intense pressure to cooperate with federal and now state prosecutors who have charged Trump. Giuliani already sat down voluntarily with Jack Smith's team this summer in two back-to-back sessions. He's now a co-defendant in the election interference case in Georgia. He is facing 13 criminal charges, like Trump, and potentially serious prison time. It's not out of character for Trump to not want to pay legal fees. This is something we have heard from many of his attorneys in the past, including his former attorney, Michael Cohen, when I sat down with him last month. Now, history repeats itself. One thing that we know for certain is that Donald does not pay legal fees. Donald doesn't pay fees at all. There's a pattern to what he does. He will pay a little bit, fall behind, pay a little more, fall bigger behind. I'm joined now by former White House counsel under President Nixon, John Dean, John, good to see you again. I mean, what do you make when you hear that Rudy Giuliani is going to Mar-a-Lago, making this desperate plea, trying to get Trump to pay for his legal fees, and Trump not really reciprocating on most of that? I think that Trump is aware that during Watergate, for example, uh, the payment of legal fees got lawyers in a lot of trouble, as did joint defense agreements. The uh, the fact that uh, he's not paying, though, is a pattern of this man. As Michael just said, uh, he just doesn't like to pay his bills. So 
he will have people come after him to get the fees. Uh, he had an agreement with Michael, and he, Michael had to go to court to get it, his fees paid. So, Caitlin, there's no surprise here. Uh, and Trump, I think, is willing to tough it out. He doesn't think Rudy will flip. But that is a concern. I mean, I think people, you know, the Michael Cohen effect, people have said that Trump has kind of changed his tactics there because of a concern of it turning into a Michael Cohen situation, potentially. I doubt that Rudy will. Rudy, Rudy knows the inner workings of the system better than most of the former U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York. Uh, he knows particularly the RICO law. Uh, he will try to poke holes. He will think he can prevail. He, he'll, uh, he certainly at the motion stage, the early stages of this proceeding, is not likely to flip. It's only if the government of Georgia can overwhelm him and he realizes he's going to go down and maybe he can save himself uh, some years by cracking a deal. I, I sat down with Bill Barr, Trump's former attorney general, of course, as you know, the other week. And he had this to say about what he has seen, he says, happen to people who were in Trump's orbit. He leaves in his wake ruined lives like this, the people who went up to Capitol Hill, these individuals, many of the people who served him in government that got sucked into things. And he just leaves all this uh, carnage in his wake. Do you think he cares about that? No, he doesn't care about that. Loyalty is a one-way street for him. John, do you think Rudy Giuliani winds up as more carnage here if he, if he hasn't already in some people's view? I think he will. I think he's in deep trouble. Uh, I, the government's case it looks like it's overwhelming. His federal issues have not been resolved. Uh, Trump could not pardon him in Georgia if... Indeed, he is convicted in Georgia. Uh, I don't think Trump is going to make it uh, back to the White House. I think people are starting to get a glimmer of what uh, that could be, and they don't want it. Uh, maybe more Republicans uh, will do that before the primary vote. I don't know. Uh, they're slow learners, apparently. So I, I think Rudy is going to get destroyed by this. It's sad, but uh, true. I mean, yeah, what is he... If he is out of, as out of money as his attorney was arguing in court today that he is, I mean, that whole, the entire reason his attorney was in court today was arguing that he could not pay uh, part of what he is being ordered to pay as part of that Smartmatic lawsuit. I mean, what does he do in that situation? Does he, does he represent himself? I mean, what options does Rudy Giuliani have at that point? Well, he can get a court-appointed lawyer at some stage. Uh, representing yourself is the worst option because... You'll, uh, anyone who represents himself is likely to make bad decisions about that representation. I think Rudy is likely to uh, go into Chapter 11 or bankruptcy of some sort. Uh, I understand his, his apartment is on the market. Uh, it could raise several million dollars, uh, but he probably has a lot of debt he has to handle immediately as well. So I think bankruptcy is a potential and maybe a court-appointed attorney. I mean, that would be kind of remarkable in the worst way if someone who was, you know, once known as America's mayor, you know, the role that he had after 9-11 is then potentially, as you predict could happen, being represented by a court-appointed attorney and filing bankruptcy to cover his legal fees. It, 
it has a Shakespearean element about it, although I don't really think of Shakespeare when I look at Rudy and some of the news clips of him recently. Uh, it does have that kind of tragic uh, uh, tale that is being told in front of us. So we'll have to all watch, and no one wishes him ill, uh, but he's gotten himself where he is. What do you make of what we saw at a Georgia overall? The district attorney there saying that she wants to have a March trial date. She's actually asking for March 4th of a trial date. I mean, whether or not that actually happens remains to be seen. But does that seem realistic, just given the makeup of this case, how complex it is, the fact that there are 19 co-defendants here? I think what's going to slow down the Georgia case is the others will file a kind of motion that Mark Meadows has filed to remove the case to federal court. While the state proceedings will continue, uh, it will bog things down a bit. And I, I don't really believe from my talk with lawyers who've really studied this body of law about removal that, that they are going to remove the case to federal court. And if they do, it's still the same Georgia prosecutors, uh, and uh, the calendar could be even clearer in, at the federal level. I don't know. It's just a different jury pool, uh, broader, wider. So that was that's what's likely to slow it down, Caitlin, is the, the removal proceedings. So you don't think that, that they're likely going to be able to get it moved from a state proceeding to, as Mark Meadows is doing, but also we we are told by sources that Trump is also likely to do. You don't think that's likely? I I don't. Uh, it it just it's hard to envision this as official uh, behavior of any of the people when you read that indictment and you read what what is being included. Uh, Mark Meadows was not just setting up meetings. Uh, he was not arranging telephone calls. That's done by secretaries, staffers, White House operators. Uh, he's in the thick of this. And as the indictment brings out, is much different than his motion. So I, I don't think they're going to prevail. And uh, many of them don't even have federal standing to, to, to remove those who are the fake electors, for example, and uh, it's just limited to those who were in federal office when these events happened. Yeah, I mean, and to bring this full circle, Rudy Giuliani is also saying he's going to potentially make that argument, though, I mean, he obviously did not work for the federal government. We'll see what the courts decide. John Dean, thank you for your perspective not a tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. So, as we noted, even Rudy Giuliani's attorney is saying that he is essentially broke. And that Donald Trump is not going to be helping anymore, we are told by sources. That stands in stark contrast to the millions that Giuliani once made working for Trump. Actually, $9.5 million in 2017, $5 million in 2018. That was according to disclosures that were made during his divorce. The connection between Giuliani's reputation and the fate of Trump are so intertwined. I mean, everyone remembers when Giuliani stood in front of the soon-to-be mob on January 6th and said this. If we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. I'm willing to stake, I'm willing to stake my reputation. The president is willing to stake his reputation on the fact that we're going to find criminality there. 
If you're surprised tonight to hear about the struggles that Giuliani is having financially, you probably shouldn't be. The money problems make sense when you just take a step back and look at how much legal trouble the New York mayor, the former mayor of New York, is facing. A $2.7 billion defamation suit by Smartmatic. Giuliani also already owes 90 grand as punishment for not complying with an order to turn over records in a separate defamation suit in which he has already acknowledged making false statements about election workers. That's before you get to the $10 million sexual assault and harassment case in which his former assistant has tapes and text. And now the 13 criminal charges that the Fulton County District Attorney brought this week against Giuliani, Trump, and 17 others. It doesn't stop there. All of this is coming as Giuliani is also facing disbarment proceedings both here in New York and in Washington. That means that right now he cannot make money from practicing law. Giuliani has firmly embraced his role as the face of Trump's election lies, something that Trump himself personally ordered. He spent months speaking at increasingly bizarre press conferences, and his reputation today is not as it once was. It is now the guy who stood outside four seasons total landscaping, pushing election lies like this one. After all, Joe Frazier is still voting here. Kind of hard since he died five years ago, but... Joe continues to vote. Before that happened, before we were at Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Philadelphia, he was the mayor that America watched walk through the cloud of dust on 9-11, who graced the cover of Time magazine as a, quote, tower of strength. He was once the most popular politician in the country and, at a time, the leading candidate for the Republican nomination. His incredible climb started with the same type of law that he is now charged under in the state of Georgia. This is a man who, according to the New York Times in 1989, quote, long asserted that he invented the use of the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, now known as RICO, to pursue the Mafia Commission. He was so associated with the law that when CNN did a story in 1988, Giuliani was the face of a wave of RICO prosecutions. Of the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, called RICO for short passed by Congress in 1970, prosecutors love it. The activities of organized crime, the drug dealing, the extortion, the labor racketeering, the murders, the executions, uh, they've also been around for a long time, and the government up until now has been virtually ineffective in dealing with it. It's a legacy he's still clinging to, even now. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that went after the mafia. I haven't changed one bit. Few people know exactly how much Rudy Giuliani has indeed changed more than my next guest, Andrew Kurtzman, who has literally written the book, two of them actually, on the former mayor. We're going to talk about what he thinks happened to Rudy Giuliani right after this. On a night when we were just talking about Rudy Giuliani's desperate pleas to get Trump to help pay for his legal bills falling on deaf ears at Mar-a-Lago, let's dig into what a remarkable fall this truly has been for the former mayor of New York. Andrew Kurtzman is here. He is the author of Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. Andrew, thank you for being here. I mean, you. you just heard us talking about the the troubles that he's facing, now trying to sell his Manhattan place. I mean, this is a very different Giuliani than the one that when you first started covering him, the way he was living, how he was how sure. he was doing. Sure. Well, Giuliani used to buy his suits off the rack at Rothman's, I think, for $400 a piece. People around him would always comment about how money was so not important to him that it was all about power to him. 
what, ha- what changed was 9-11, right? He became, you know, one of the most beloved people on the planet. A poll said that he was more popular than the Pope at, at one point. And he opened up a consulting company, Giuliani Partners, that made $100 million in five years. He became stratospherically wealthy. He bought six houses, 11 country club memberships. I interviewed 11. uh, 11. (laughs) Judith Giuliani, his ex-wife, spoke to me uh, at length from my book. And there was a quote in the book, which which was kind of amusing and harrowing, which was we were spending $250,000 a month on sheer fun. I mean, he was living a very, very lavish lifestyle, spent it recklessly, divorced Judith Giuliani, had a, you know, Gave a lot away, and uh, and now the legal bills are. He's just drowning in legal bills, and the fact that Donald Trump won't bail him out is just absolutely tragic. I mean, it's he, extraordinary. he gave him three hundred and forty thousand uh, dollars. We're told that Giuliani has seven figures in legal fees that he is that he is facing. Yeah, I mean he's, I mean he's being sued for defamation, right? He's uh, he's under criminal, uh, he's under indictment, a criminal investigation in, in D.C. There are civil suits against him, right? The uh, the Ruby Freeman, the, uh, the woman, the election worker in Atlanta is suing him. He's he's representing himself in some cases because he's, he's burning through his money. You've covered him for 30 years. I mean, does this surprise you? Uh, nothing surprises me when it comes to Rudy Giuliani. I mean, the reason I've been covering him for 30 years is that he's such a complex, over-the-top, larger-than-life figure, right? I mean, he's he's an opera fan, and he's kind of his life is an opera. I mean, he's his you know almost you know escapes death on on 9/11. He he busted the mob, right? Ran for president, had this extraordinary flameout in 2008. Um, goes to Ukraine, leads to one presidential impeachment, tries to upend democracy under under Trump, leads to a second impeachment. I mean, there is no story like Rudy Giuliani's. His his is one of, I guess, the most extraordinary political rise and fall stories of our time. So what happened to him? When people ask that question, I mean, that is the question of Rudy Giuliani, it feels like, from people who saw him at the White House, when he was having the press conference where his hair dye was running down his hair, you know, he's at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. That is the question, is what happened to Rudy Giuliani? I think in a word, it was desperation. I think that uh, his rise to power was so extraordinary. Hero prosecutor, hero mayor, a presidential candidate um, who was leading in the polls for a full year in 2008 in the Republican primary. He lasts just four uh, excuse me, eight weeks in the Republican primary, drops out in total humiliation with only one delegate and falls from grace, loses his 9-11 halo, and suddenly he's out in the wilderness. And who comes to his rescue but Donald Trump? And, um, you know, he literally ha- houses him at, in Mar-a-Lago soon after the election. He had mm-hmm. fallen into depression. He was, he was drinking. I mean, Giuliani had kind of hit rock bottom. And it was... Donald Trump, who was kind of his ticket back to power in 2016, it was Donald Trump who needed Rudy Giuliani. When he was running for president in 2016, Trump didn't have any political friends. He needed Giuliani, and Giuliani needed Trump because no one was calling Giuliani for um, his endorsement except for Trump. Do you think that's why Giuliani was so willing to do what Trump— I mean, he went to Ukraine and looked into all of that. Trump was telling, you know— People in Ukraine, Ukrainian officials, 
talked to Rudy Giuliani instead right. of the attorney general, like he worked at the Justice Department. Trump put him in charge of going out and pushing all of his election lies. I mean, Rudy did all of it and some. Right. I, I mean, you know, Julia, after all of Trump's election lawyers, campaign lawyers, the United States attorney general had told Trump that he had lost the election. There was only one man telling him he would he had won, and that was Rudy Giuliani. And that, of course, predictably, he put Rudy Giuliani in charge of, uh, of the election situation when trying to turn around the race. I mean, Giuliani was there with Trump when they turned off the lights in, at the White House. The last man standing telling him that he had still won. The fact that Trump now is not paying his legal bills, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. But it's not really surprising. I mean, that is Trump's MO. I mean, Michael right. Cohen, people, they say that, you know, this is kind of what he does. I mean, what about the fact that Giuliani is now facing, I mean, he's not just in over his head in legal fees. He is facing criminal charges in Georgia for the same law that he used to use here to go after members of organized crime. Right. I mean, the irony is extraordinary. I mean, RICO is not just uh, a legal um, statute to Giuliani. Rico is part of his personality. It's part of his story. I mean, Giuliani tells the story over and over how um, back then, uh, when he was still number three in the Justice Department, he was overhearing the television with Joe Bonanno, who had, uh, Mafia Don, who had inexplicably written an autobiography, talked about the commission, like the Godfather scene, where all the God, all the mobsters um, sat around and kind of made their big decisions. And according to Giuliani, he had this kind of light bulb moment where he's like, I can use Rico and charge them all at once. And that's what he did. And he was successful. And it made him, you know, world famous and an American hero for... Um, for the Atlanta grand jury now to indict him on RICO charges, it's kind of like a stab and a knife to the heart of the Giuliani story. He must be devastated by it. Andrew Kurtzman, I mean, your book, you have enough material for more books, I would say. <laughs> the Rise and Fall, The Rise and Tragic Fall, I should note, of America's Mayor Giuliani. Thank you for joining us Thank tonight. you. And if you want to know more about the Rudy Giuliani story, given, of course, there is so much there. Saturday night at 8 o'clock, the CNN original series, What Happened to America's Mayor, asks how the man considered a hero in the aftermath of 9-11 became the architect of Donald Trump's election conspiracies. Also coming up next for us tonight, the Fulton County District Attorney, Bonnie Willis, has now proposed a date for Donald Trump. How his court calendar is lining up with the political one and the complications there. Also, new reporting on Trump's current thinking about whether or not he's going to show up for that first debate one week from tonight. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis asking a judge to set a trial date for March 4th, 2024, adding to Trump's dizzying calendar of overlapping court dates and the campaign trail. After Trump is facing a civil trial here in New York in October, he could stand trial in special counsel Jack Smith's election conspiracy case and the defamation suit all in the midst of the Iowa caucuses. While Bonnie Willis's case in Georgia could start one day before Super Tuesday, if it goes as she is asking, that is when voters in more than a dozen states are also going to go to the polls. Georgia voters eight days later are going to be casting their primary votes. And this doesn't even factor in the classified documents case and when that could happen. Trump and his 18 co-defendants in Georgia tonight have nine more days to voluntarily surrender which we are told is going to happen at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, 
So far, we are told that no one has turned themselves in, and instead, Trump's attorneys are right now in talks about the details of what that surrender will look like and when it could happen. Discuss more tonight with two political veterans, Van Jones, a former Obama administration official, and Kristen Soltis-Anderson, a Republican strategist and pollster. I mean, we have all the legal questions for this, but also there is the political aspect because we are now in an election year. There's new polling out that says he's still enjoying strong support from Republicans. No surprise there. More of them want him to run than they did even in April. But when it comes to the general, 74% of Republicans say that they would support Trump in November 2024, but only 53% of Americans say that they definitely would not back him. I mean, do do Republicans see that? Are they looking at these numbers? Republicans are looking at Joe Biden and are going, there's no way America's going to vote for that guy. We can put up Donald Trump and he's a fighter and he'll win. And that's why a lot of these attempted electability arguments that you've seen folks like Ron DeSantis try to subtly make in the primary saying, well, I'm a winner. I'm the one who knows how to win. The unspoken contrast there being Donald Trump doesn't know how to win. Republican voters just don't really buy that. Now, that doesn't mean that he's guaranteed to be the nominee, and it certainly doesn't mean that if he is the nominee, uh, he'd be the next president, as many Republicans really think. But I do think that this general election, a lot of those polls show it not too far apart between Trump and Biden in a hypothetical rematch. Republicans do not think that he is the political poison that, say, some independents think he is. There are numbers to back that up. The new Quinnipiac poll shows that uh, a hypothetical matchup between Biden and Trump is a virtual tie. I mean, what does the White House say when they see those numbers, especially when they see all the (laughs) indictments and charges and problems? You know, I think they probably, the sound you hear is them banging their heads against the wall because the economic numbers are starting to look a lot better uh, you're a year out from the uh, IRA being passed, the Inflation Reduction Act being passed. Uh, that looks like it's going really well. Uh, jobs are being created. And they're getting zero attention because their main candidate is getting indicted all the time. And folks seem to like it. <laughs> like, this is nuts. And by the way, the people in the Republican Party who apparently like all this stuff, they wouldn't hire someone who had 91 felony charges against them. They wouldn't give that person a job interview. And yet they're willing to put someone like that in the White House. It is bizarre. It's also completely sucking up all the oxygen on all the campaign the trail. All, I mean, maybe every single last bit of it. I mean, Ron DeSantis was in Iowa today where he has basically been stationed for the last several weeks. He was asked about these many indictments. He says he thinks the Republican Party needs to move on. If we are fighting about what happened in 2020 or January 6, 2021, If that is what the election ends up about, Joe Biden's going to be hanging out in his basement in Delaware again, not a care in the world, and Republicans are going to lose. I mean, Trump is holding a news conference on Monday to finally prove his fraud claims. This isn't going away. It's still something that Trump is making an unavoidable topic. No, and that calendar that you just showed at the start of the segment really confirms that not only is this not going away, this is going to be the thing dominating the headlines in the heat of Republican primary season. And even if I'm skeptical that these charges actually make any Republicans really more likely to vote for him, but it certainly solidifies those around him. It makes them feel like they need to take defensive action stand by their guy and keep supporting him, almost as a way to kind of just stick it to the other side. And as long as that's the narrative around the primaries, it will make it very hard for many of these other contenders who the polls show Republicans really like. Ron DeSantis, they like Tim Scott, they like Vivek Ramaswamy, all these folks. They're just not picking them in the primary right now. Donald Trump still owns the conversation. Yeah, I mean, Mike Pence is having to say today, you know, Trump 
Georgia was not stolen. Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, also had to say that recently. I I don't even know what you're going to say about this, but Marjorie Taylor Greene was asked about this, and she basically had this. She was asked um, about that and whether or not, because of that, where she was unhappy with Brian Kemp for saying that, if she would challenge him if he ran for Senate. That is something that he's rumored to do. That's not the point of her quote, but she said, I haven't made up my mind whether I will do that or not. Do that or not. I have a lot of things to think about. Am I going to be part of President Trump's cabinet if he wins? Is it possible that I'll be VP? <laughs> Look, first of all, who is Marjorie Taylor Greene? Who, 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 is, who are you talking about? She, she's never passed a bill. She's never chaired a committee. She's never done literally anything at all except to be an obnoxious controversialist. But she might be the VP. I mean, in this completely upside down, bizarre world, her word matches up against a successful governor and the former vice president. And that's the world that we're in. Donald Trump made that world where if you're just obnoxious enough and crazy enough and have enough uh, lunatic tweets, you can dominate the conversation. He's doing it. She's doing it. It is not good for America, though. I mean, what would those Senate confirmation hearings even look like <laughs> if she is nominated to a cabinet post? I, it would just be a, a, a circus inside of a zoo uh, on fire. <laughs> a circus inside of a zoo on fire? That, would be, that would be the hearing. All right, Van Jones, Kristen Sulte-Sanderson, thank you both. Thank you. Up next, rescue workers are getting more access to areas that are cut off previously in Maui. The governor, though, of Hawaii says right now they still believe more than 1,000 people are missing. We'll get an update on the ground. President Biden announcing today that he and the First Lady will visit Maui on Monday after Republicans, including former President Trump, criticized his response to the tragedy so far. should note he has also declared an emergency declaration for there. He's also spoken to multiple officials. But on Monday, the Bidens are going to be able to see firsthand the devastation from the deadly wildfires that have claimed at least 110 lives, according to the latest counts. Tonight, officials are warning that that number is going to rise, they believe, as search and rescue teams are continuing to comb through the aftermath. That is wreckage that the Hawaii governor, Josh Green, described to me as reminiscent of 9-11. It's that difficult to be going through this not only finding people, but also identifying those that they do find. So far, about a third of the burn area has been searched as this painstaking process of identifying victims continues. Officials have even had to ask relatives to provide DNA samples. Joining me now again tonight is Jeff Hickman, the Director of Public Affairs for Hawaii's Department of Defense. And Jeff, it's good to see you again, and thank you for for coming back on. Can you just kind of describe... You know, we t- spoke the other day. What is the ser- search operation like on the ground right now as it stands tonight? Thank you for having me again. Um, the search has, the efforts have increased uh, multiple times over. They went from 20 search canines to 40, coming from 15 different states. That just shows you the, the aloha and the effort that the nation is taking in getting Maui exactly what they need. And right now, the search, you said one third of the area is searched. Um, the death toll will go up, more bodies will be found, and we'll start to, to bring closure to those who need it and identify those missing. There's um, assistance centers helping those who are missing. There's the civilian list going around and DNA being collected to help make the match and help people find those who are still missing. The last time that you and I talked, you estimated about 1,000 people were missing. Where does that number stand tonight? Uh, that that hasn't changed. They're still estimating um, 
many, many more people to be found there. With the teams increasing in size, both from the National Guard, uh, FEMA, and local first responders, uh, firefighters now are able to, you know, uh, leave the fires. There's still some fires burning in hotspots, but now they can they can assist the others in the area that's affected, and that's that's really that's that's great. Uh, and with that effort, they're going to start going into buildings, and when they do that, uh, the numbers will go up a lot. You know, I was able to talk to a search and rescue uh, team member from the Hawaii National Guard, and he let me know that the first thing they do is they walk through the area, and the first thing they do is they listen for anybody who uh, might be making a noise. And uh, and that's just, that's heart-wrenching. But on that team is searchers and fatality search and recovery personnel who, when they do find a body, you know, with compassion and care and time, they take that body and, and get it back to where it can be identified. It is taking a long time for the search to discover and then recover the remains. So we just ask for patience during this time. You mentioned that when these search team goes in, you, that they're they're listening for sounds. I mean, are they hearing anything? Uh, no, sadly, they're not, and uh, that's just it's part of the process. It's the steps that they take, and you know, there's there's just hope, but that that's one of the steps they do. Then they go back with a fine tooth comb and and go over the area multiple times, and it's sad, but they're getting better at their job, and you know, the the motivation is the families. And this is a community-based organization. These are guardsmen who are from the area. You know, this is their community. They're used to uh, cleaning up debris, maybe um, protecting people from going to down certain roads during lava or floods. You know, this is this is brand new. You mentioned those that are there. I mean, this is a this is not what their normal jobs are. But what other kind of experts have been brought in? Because I mean, the governor last night was comparing this to the aftermath of a war zone, or he said it, it looked like ground ground zero after 9-11, obviously different situations, but but he was saying that is the kind of expertise that they are needing people to come in and help identify people. Yeah, they're bringing in complete teams. FEMA is uh, you know, with over 400 personnel on the ground, uh, assisting not just the people of Maui, but assisting in the process of identifying, bringing in experts from around the world uh, to the little island of Maui. Um, and with their expertise, uh, it is actually helping the process. On top of that, you have grief counselors, you have chaplains, you have community outreach. You still have people who may be on the mainland, around the world, or somewhere other than Maui, and they're the ones missing people, and it's really hard to connect those personnel to the ones on Maui. It's not just Maui people missing Maui mm -hmm. people. You know, there's there might be some international people who are missing uh, family and friends, and they're finding challenges as well. So it's yeah. a it's a very well-rounded situation, and we're trying to help Maui get a handle on that. Jeff Hickman, we are thinking of you and everyone that you're working with and all of those search teams. Thank you for, for joining us tonight. Mahalo, Caitlin. Of course, we'll continue to monitor updates there. Also back here, now three branches of the military do not have confirmed leadership tonight because of Republican Senator Tommy Terrell's hold on military promotions. The chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee is here. He'll join me next about how he believes this is impacting military readiness. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calling out Senator Tommy Tuberville and demanding that Republican leaders intervene in his ongoing efforts to block top military nominations. The Alabama Republican is stalling the nominations in protest 
of the Pentagon's abortion policy. And as of tonight, his hold has left three military services, as you can see here, without Senate-confirmed leaders for the first time ever in U.S. history. The Army Chief of Staff, the Marine Corps Commandant, and the Chief of Naval Operations all filled on an acting basis. More than 300 military officer promotions are currently on hold in total. Joining me now to discuss Democratic Senator Jack Reed, who is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And Senator, thank you for being here. I mean, the Pentagon says it's not changing its policy. Tuberville told me he's not lifting his hold until they do. Where does this leave the military tonight? It leaves the military in a very precarious position. Uh, We have key leaders that uh, are not in place uh, in very sensitive areas. I just returned from Wiesbaden, Germany, and uh, there we have uh, coordinating all our activities for the Ukraine. And the uh, nominee for deputy commander of that uh, organization is not in place. Uh, And the commander can't assume all those responsibilities. It's an incredible job. We have uh, the commander of our Pacific Fleet who is not in place. We have uh, the Marine Corps commander in Japan. Uh, This is also an effect that uh, sort of cascades downward because it sends signals to very promising young officers, colonels, lieutenant colonels, that they're just political pawns. And, And it's very, very destructive. And it's also very destructive and disruptive for the families. And you, said, you, have a, you said earlier this week that, that Republican leadership, because of the effects that you just talked about on military readiness, but also on the families, that Republican leadership needs to tell Tuberville in public what they are saying in private. What are they saying in private? Well, I think in private, they recognize, uh, many of them, the uh, detriment and uh, the need to move quickly. And But that's all very nice. But they have to come out very publicly on the floor and say, uh, this is an issue about the readiness of the United States and the professionalism of our military forces. Uh, and we have to move and confirm these officers. Otherwise, it gets worse and worse and worse, both for the soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, and guardians, and their families. And the family issue cannot be ignored. Uh, We've spoken with several of those families. We've spoken with several of those families. They talk about, I mean, it affects whether or not they can move, whether military spouses can start new jobs, getting their kids in schools. I mean, we talked about that with Tuberville directly, but the Senate is on a five-week recess right now. Senator Schumer does set the schedule. And technically, some of these nominations could move individual. And I understand what Tuberville is doing is unprecedented because usually they are all done together. But couldn't Democrats force a vote on some of these stalled nominees alone? Well, if we had to vote on all these nominees, we've asked uh, the congressional researchers and others, uh, they estimated it would take about 30 days if we were working seven days a week and 24 hours a day to get these nominations through. That means we can't do the supplemental appropriation for the Ukraine, which is absolutely critical for the success of the Ukrainians and for our and NATO success. We couldn't uh, talk about debate, a continuing resolution to keep the government open. Uh, And if we pick and choose one or two, uh, what about the rest of those uh, men and women? Uh, they'll be left behind. Uh, you know, one of the things about being in the military is you don't leave people behind. We have to get this done as we've always done, which is unless there is an objection based on facts to a nominee, these nominees will move forward. 
And that's what we have to do. And it's the Republicans who are going to have to stand up on the floor of the Senate and say, this is wrong. We must go ahead and confirm these officers for their own uh, satisfaction, their own uh, reward for service, and also for the safety of the nation. But what happens if they don't? Well, I think they're, they're shirking their responsibilities, frankly. Uh, we have been on the floor constantly asking for you know, to pursue these nominations, to talk about these nominations. Uh, you know, you get some indications. I think Senator McConnell said initially that, oh, he doesn't support this. But that's a lot different than going in and saying, we're going to get this done. And I think if they did that, that would send a signal uh, that there are other ways to protest his objection to DOD policy, and they're more appropriate than this. Uh, this is just seriously harming our national security, and we have to stand together, uh, both as Republicans and Democrats, more importantly, as Americans who value and respect the service of our men and women in uniform. You know, frankly, the irony is that, you know, some of these people will be the first in line with their American flag pins on, uh, telling how you know much they enjoy and support the military. Now it's time to stand up and support the military. Senator Jack Reed, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Up next, a former aide to the indicted New York Congressman George Santos now has an indictment that matches his bosses. A former campaign aide for indicted Republican Congressman George Santos has been indicted. Samuel Mealy is charged with impersonating a high-ranking staff member of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's in an attempt to raise money for his boss, the known serial liar George Santos. Mealy pleaded not guilty, and the indictment says that he asked more than a dozen contributors to fund Santos's campaign, and he also got a 15% commission from it. Prosecutors allege that he wrote a letter to Santos back in 2022 saying, quote, faking my identity to a big donor. He also wrote high risk, high reward in everything I do. Something he said did turn out to be true. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Wolf Blitzer starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.